come up, Al? Any other thoughts? Excellent. All right. <laughs> well, good morning. If you're a guest here this morning, my name is David, one of the pastors here at Palm Vista, and uh, it's great to have you with us. We are continuing this morning in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, entitled The Eternal God with Dusty Feet. The Eternal God with Dusty Feet. As we work through the Gospel of John, John, he gives us, of all the Gospel writers, the most forceful and clear view of Jesus as the eternal God who's taken on flesh, human flesh, and invites us to to join him in eternal life. Today's text is John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34, so you can start flipping there or scrolling there in your Bible. Uh, This is the first narrative or uh, the beginning of the actual stories that John is going to tell. Um, And it's a story this morning of confrontation and conflict. Uh, John's going to unpack the first week of Jesus' ministry, and this is the first two days in our text. And in this conflict, we're going to be introduced to Jesus, who is the main character of the gospel, and invited to see and behold him for who he really is. So the thesis of this morning's sermon is Behold Jesus. So turn with me, if you would, John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. He did not die, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me. The straps whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, when he saw Jesus coming towards him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes the man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, on him who you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. (laughs) Thank you that you came for us, Lord Jesus. Thank you that we have this text this morning to study. We have this text not just to study with our minds, Lord, but we pray that this text would move us in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you, through your word, Holy Spirit of God, would you come and move on the hearts of your people, stirring us to behold you for who you are, to see you, Jesus, that we might with John declare, behold, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 
Help us to see you this morning in this, in this scripture, we pray. Amen. So every year my family takes uh, a family trip to Georgia, where my, uh, my parents' home is, or my father's home is. And, um, and so we rotate. One year it's Christmas, one year it's Thanksgiving. We load all the kids up in the van, and we start the 10 to 12-hour trek north. Uh, as we get in the car, everybody takes bets of what time they think we're going to arrive, and then all the kids watch for the entire 12 hours, the GPS clock tick down. Uh, when they get traffic, some people start cheering, other people start crying. Um, we're watching all the way up the turnpike, and you know, the turnpike, they've got those brand new uh, rest areas with the Dunkin' Donuts and the clean bathrooms, so we make stops along the way, and I was just thinking this week, like, how, how ridiculous it would be, you know, as we're headed to my parents' house, there's zip lines there, there's a tree house, they've got this beautiful property in the North Georgia woods, uh, if we got to the first rest area, or maybe we got up to, I don't know, Turkey Point, and we get off uh, at the turnpike, rest stop, go get ourselves a donut, uh, use the restrooms, get back in the car and say, well, that was a great trip, wasn't it? And then turn around and head back. Uh, wait, we made it to the rest area, now let's head home. Um, the point of the trip isn't to get to the rest area, right? The point of the trip is to get to the treehouse, to get to the, the house, that family home in the woods. And in our text this morning, John the Baptist is trying to convince his interrogators uh, that they're misunderstanding his purpose, that he's not the destination. John is trying to say, I'm the rest area. I'm the one who's pointing to the destination. He's not the point of the story. Jesus is the point of the story. He wants them and he wants us this morning as we're reading this text to fix our eyes and to find for ourselves the main character of the story is Jesus. Our thesis is behold Jesus. And the first point of our sermon this morning is that he is, Jesus is, the main character. Today's story starts with a conflict. The center is this one question that the Pharisees, their, their delegates, are asking John. They're saying, who are you? Look in verse 19. Um, testimony of John. The Jews have sent these priests and Levites from Jerusalem. And they ask John three times. They say, who are you? In verse 19. And he says in 21, are you Elijah? Later in verse 21, are you the prophet? They're asking him about these three different uh, prophetic figures, Christ, Elijah, and the prophet, or Moses. And they're asking him, which one of these are you, John? Just to clear up for anybody uh, this morning, or maybe is new to uh, Christianity, John, the John here in our story, isn't the gospel writer. Um, this John is John the Baptist. Uh, there's two different Johns, the one who wrote this book, and John the Baptist, which is Jesus's cousin, uh, he was a bit of a weirdo. He lived in the desert. He ate bugs. Uh, and he preached this fire and brimstone gospel of repentance. Um, and thousands of people had been flocking to John out there in the desert, eating bugs, telling them to repent. And he was baptizing them in the Jordan River. And this had caught the attention of the Jewish uh, leaders in Jerusalem uh, for a couple reasons. First, uh, baptism isn't something you're supposed to do to Jews. Uh, baptism is what you do for Gentiles when they want to become a Jew. They go through a whole process of purification. One of those steps is to wash them in the river, to baptize them. Ritually, they are unclean. When you baptize them, they become clean and can now join the people of God. But John, who's not a priest, is out in the wilderness, and he's baptizing Jews. 
He's telling the Jews, uh, making this implication with his baptism that they are just as dirty as the Gentiles and just as needing of cleansing as these Gentiles who want to become a part of God's people. So what did the, Jews, the Jewish leaders do? Well, they send their experts in purification rituals. They spend their priests and their Levites to go and interrogate John and find out, John, who do you think you are that you're out here telling people that they are dirty and need to be clean? These are Jews that you're talking to. So these three figures, the Christ, that's the first question they ask, who are you? John knows what they're asking. Are you the Christ? Are you this Messiah figure that's been prophesied through generations that's coming to set our people free from slavery? This, this king who's going to come and establish a new kingdom of, of Jews who are going to rule for the, the, the thousands of years to come? No, he says, I'm not, I'm not the Christ. Well, about Elijah? Are you Elijah? Elijah? Uh, John makes sense being Elijah. Elijah was a fiery prophet in the Old Testament. Doom and gloom gospel. Um, Malachi 4 uh, ends, the, the book of Malachi, the end of the Old Testament, ends with this promise that Elijah's going to come back and restore peace between generations before the Lord returns. Elijah left on a chariot. He didn't die. He went off on a fiery chariot. And so the Jews expected, uh, the Pharisees expected at some point, Elijah's going to ride his chariot back. He's coming back with his, with his fire chariot. And he's going to establish justice. He's going to come and, and usher forth the end of all things. Curiously, John says, no, I'm, I'm not Elijah either. Well, how about this? Are you the prophet? In Deuteronomy 8.15, Moses promised a prophet like him, a Moses-like prophet, is going to come to usher in the end times. He's going to come and, and bring justice. And the people actually listen to this Moses. But three times he says, no, I'm, I'm not the Christ. Literally what he says is, I'm not the one who's the Christ. Then 21, he says, no, I'm not. I'm not Elijah. Technically, Jesus later on says that John did fulfill the role of Elijah but he's saying, I'm not the one you're looking for. I'm not that kind of Elijah. I'm not coming back. I'm not Elijah in the flesh coming back to establish justice on the earth. That's not me. They ask him the third time, and he says, no. Notice John's answers get shorter each time. You ever do that with your kids? No, you can't have that. No, please, no. No, like that's it. No, I'm not the one you're looking for. He's trying to make it clear to these specialists, these interrogators, he's not the one they're looking for. Well, they keep going. They ask him again. We've got to give an answer. We've got to check a box on our interrogation checklist. Who are you, John? Uh, and then he gives them this quote in verse 23. It comes from Isaiah chapter 40. John's going to reference a lot of Isaiah. He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So Isaiah, he had prophesied as well that a prophet would come, and this prophet would clear a path for the Messiah. Literally, Isaiah's prophecy was this, this prophet would call out to the people to bore holes through mountains, put bridges across rivers, because we need to build a highway. we got to build a turnpike from the wilderness to Jerusalem because the Messiah is bringing us home. And so he said, this prophet is going to be out in the wilderness calling to the people, get this path ready, the Messiah is bringing us home. And John's saying, that's me. I'm the one in the wilderness with God's people. We're not in the promised land right now. We're in the wilderness. I'm telling you, there's one coming. Get the path ready. Get on the turnpike. He's taking us home. John's not the road. John's not the construction company that's been hired to build the road. He's certainly not the destination. John is just a voice. 
and he's telling the people, I'm the exit sign. I'm the one saying, get on the road. Jesus is the destination. Jesus is the family home in the woods. He's the one that's going to lead his people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And John is saying, my job is to be the voice telling you to behold Jesus, telling you to look for him and to get ready for him because he's coming very, very soon the next day, and he's going to take us home. Jesus is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I'm the road, not John. Well, they don't get it. (laughs) So they keep asking. Look in verse 25. They said, well, then why are you baptizing, John, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet? And John gives them his final answer for the day. He tells them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you don't know, implying Jesus might actually be there in the crowd that day, standing there, and the Jews are interrogating John while Jesus is standing right here just kind of listening. Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. What's he saying? Well, a sandal, this tying of a sandal was a task that was considered at the time uh, too lowly even for a slave unless it was the most menial and lowly of the slaves. A teacher's disciples didn't untie the sandals. They might wash the feet, but they don't touch the strap of the sandals. That's too gross. And even a regular household slave didn't do this. And he's saying, I'm lower than even the lowest of the slave in the house of Jesus. I'm not worthy being paid attention to. Why are you talking to me? Jesus is the point of the story. Jesus is the main character here. You're interrogating the wrong man. The one who's coming is far greater than me. He's trying to get them to understand that they're not going to understand the work that John is doing unless they understand the destination John is going to. They're not going to understand the work that John is doing unless they understand the person that he is pointing to. And the same is true for us, church. You're not going to understand the work that God has given you to do unless you understand the one that it's supposed to point to. You're not going to understand what God has given you to do unless you understand the destination it's intended to take you to, Jesus. I think we're all tempted to think of ourselves as the main character of our story, aren't we? I think of Jesus as a sort of side quest or Uh, background character who comes in at certain points and then steps back out again. No, Jesus is the main character, you understand. We're the the, the set actors. We're the ones on the side. Uh, Jesus is the main character, the, the main purpose of our careers, of our kids, our hobbies, our ministries, our church. All of these are meant not to reveal the significance of us, right? We we think that my job gives me purpose. My kids give me meaning. This is what gives me purpose in life. No, these are things that are meant to intend to point us to the real purpose of our lives, which is Christ. I wonder how it would change the way we approach our lives and our vocation and our recreation if we considered Christ as the main character. What kind of hope, what kind of humility, what kind of perspective would it give us when that project we've poured our lives into for the last year goes belly up? (laughs) Or when our kids grow and move out, and we wonder, what what are we doing anymore? Why am I even here? Or when our small business flourishes and grows, and everybody tells us what a great entrepreneur we are. The point isn't to magnify us. The 
point is to point to Jesus, the destination. Behold Jesus. He's the main character, the point of all history and the point of our story. The point one, behold Jesus. He's the main character. And point two is this. Behold Jesus. He's the sin taker. He's the sin taker. Uh, there's a show on, on PBS called Antiques Roadshow. You ever seen Antiques Roadshow? So people bring in all their old junk. Dina, you love Antiques Roadshow? They, people find things in their basements, something that was left to them by a great-great-granduncle. They, they drag it out, and they think it's worth something, and so they bring it to the Antiques Roadshow. And uh, on live TV, they examine it with an expert, and they get a valuation, right? Sometimes they think it's worth a lot. They're like, no, nah, this is junk, man. <laughs> it's nothing. Uh, but every once in a while, you get a treasure. And um, there was a story uh, on Antiques Roadshow years ago. I don't even know if the show's still on anymore. Um, but this gentleman brought a, a watch from the early 1900s that had been passed down from his great-great-grandfather. And he, it was a pretty watch, and so he thought, you know, this may be worth something. I think he'd had it appraised once for like $1,000 or $2,000. Uh, and so he's like, let me just check and see if this is worth, worth anything. So he brings it in. Uh, the, the expert is there looking at this watch and talking about it. Ask the man what you think it's worth. He says, he says what he thought, and he says, yeah, it's a little bit more than that. Uh, this watch is actually designed by this, this Swiss architect, uh, that designer, that, that there's very few left, and the, the company that made them is now buying them at auction, wherever they can find them. Your watch, it's not worth two, $3,000. It's actually worth somewhere in the two to $3 million range. <laughs> he was pretty excited, you know, I would be. Uh, he then mentioned, I'm going to take this home very, very carefully, uh, let's not drop this watch. Um, it changed the way he saw the watch very, very quickly. And, and in, in our text here in verse 29, uh, just a day after his confrontation with the Jewish delegates, G, uh, John has a, a similar but much more profound experience where he realizes, he amazes, makes this surprising discovery that his little cousin, he grew up playing Legos with, is actually the Messiah long awaited by Israel. And he has a, oh my gosh, moment. Uh, look at verse 29. The next day, uh, John, he saw Jesus coming towards him and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one John had been waiting for. As surprising as it might have been for the crowd around John to hear him shout out, it would have been earth-shattering for John to realize who Jesus really was. This one he'd taken for granted his whole life. Now he realizes this is actually the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the one, the Messiah that's been waited for. Our text twice it says, I didn't know who Jesus was, John says. It's not that he didn't know him. He knew who he was. He didn't know who he was, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so he shouts out, behold, this is not a small little squeak. Uh, this, is, this is a we just won the lottery shout. Uh, this is that uh, we just made that impossible field goal winning game Field game winning field goal. You get it, football people. We got it. Behold. It's a big deal. All of a sudden, uh, he sees Jesus with new eyes. And it changes the way he feels about Jesus, the way he thinks about Jesus. His whole life is put in a different perspective. And all of a sudden, he says, That's the one I've been doing all this for. It reorients his entire work. It reorients everything John thought about the world. Now I know what it's all about. It's about him. He calls him the Lamb of God. That's a deep and rich statement. Um, 
At some point, we'll, maybe we'll just do a whole sermon series on what it means that he's the Lamb of God. It, it, it points to so much Old Testament rich imagery. The, the scapegoat lamb that, that Israel put their hands on its head and he took all the sins and he sent it out in the wilderness. It points back to the lamb that, that was given to Abraham when, when he took Isaac up on the hill and they're climbing up the hill. He's going to sacrifice his only son. And Isaac turns to Abraham. He says, he says, Dad, where's the lamb? He says, God will provide the lamb. And he does. The Jewish people would have thought of the Passover lamb. Every single year, they brought out a lamb and they slaughtered it to remember when God rescued them from Egypt and slaughtered all the firstborn, all the man, male and female, all of the, the animal firstborn, all slaughtered. But those who had the blood of the lamb over their doorpost were saved. And every year, Jerusalem, the Jews, they would slaughter a lamb. They remember, they tell the story to their kids about how Jesus, about how God, through this, this lamb, saved them from the angel of death. Definitely brings back imagery from Isaiah, who John has just referenced. Isaiah 53, I want you to look with me. Who Isaiah predicted this Messiah Savior. The Jews were expecting this, this conquering king, but Isaiah told them to expect something different. Look what he says in, in, in Isaiah 53 4. Surely he, this is the Savior, this is the Messiah to come, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. This is what Jesus did. This is what John is realizing. In this moment, he's realizing this Jesus, this cousin of mine, is the, the Lamb of God who's going to be pierced for the iniquities of Israel, who's going to be crushed for the transgressions of his people. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own ways. All of us, church, have gone our own way. Every one of us have wandered from God. Every one of us deserve the judgment of God. Every one of us deserve not to be counted among Israel in the house with the blood over the doorpost. We deserve to be with Egypt, with our children, with ourselves, punished because of our iniquity. But what does he say? We all deserve We've all gone astray, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Oh, what a promise. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Every year, they'd take their lamb to the slaughter. That's Jesus. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is Jesus. Jesus is the lamb who takes upon himself the grief, the sorrows, the shame, the sin, the inadequacy, everything wretched, everything unlovable about us. Jesus takes that upon his perfect spotless self, his perfect spotless unsinning soul. Jesus takes all of that upon himself and then died for you. Behold, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's Jesus. And then we... The filthy, the dirty, then made clean are not just made clean, but we're given his righteousness. Isaiah later goes on in 53 to describe how, how that same lamb then lives his righteousness, gives his righteousness to his people. We're counted as righteous. We're all the good works that Jesus did, all the wonderful healings, all the great merciful acts that you saw in Jesus' life, those are yours. Jesus looks at you. God looks at you now. If you're in Christ, he doesn't see your filthiness. He sees Jesus' spotless righteousness. That's something to behold. He doesn't just take away the sins of Israel like the Passover lamb. He says, behold, this, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of who? The world. That was scandalous to those listening. 
That was ludicrous. Jesus, wait, the Lamb of God comes for Israel, right? To lead us away from our oppressors. He says, no, no, no. We're all the oppressors. God's Lamb comes for all of the world that he might lead us into his promised land once and for all. There is no one, there is nothing too filthy for the blood of Jesus to wash clean. There's no sin too heinous to be transformed by Jesus' blood into righteousness. Even as Christians, we can doubt that God's blood, that the blood of Jesus, the lamb of the blood of God, uh, is really enough to take all of our sins away. Especially uh, the ones that we just keep going back to, right? I thought that word this morning about a newly married couple, excited about their, their first love. But then decades later, we can start to grow cold. We can do that as Christians too. We can be excited at first about the blood of Jesus that covers all my sins. But then we stack up some more and some more and some more and some more. And we start to wonder, does God really forgive all of those? I mean, I knew his love already and I still keep sinning. Yes, his blood is sufficient for that. It takes away the sins of the whole world, especially his people. He takes your sins, church. It's his people that he takes the sins of. It's a scandalous promise of the cross that the blood of the Lamb covers all of our sins, even the ones you committed on the drive over this morning. The blood of the Lamb isn't just something we need once to be washed clean to come and become a Christian. The blood of the Lamb is something we need every single day, every morning, every afternoon, every minute. We're going to need it. We're going to need it now. And guess what? Just like we sang earlier, we're going to sing the blood of the Lamb when we're in heaven in eternity. We won't have any more sins to wash clean, but we're still going to be singing about it. It's not a doctrine that we start with and then we move on to more important things. No, the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus that's been poured out for your sin is the central doctrine of Christianity. It's the one we come back to every week, every day, every morning, every afternoon. We need Jesus. He's a sin taker. Behold Jesus, the main character, the sin taker. And point three, Jesus, he's the spirit giver. Um, my youngest, she, had, she gave me permission to share this. She, she just um, started losing her first tooth a few weeks ago. And... Um, uh, she was very excited about it, and, and, you know, she's the youngest of four, so she's pretty confident she knows who the tooth fairy is, uh, but she wanted proof, and so, uh, she, you know, she did her whole thing with the, with the tooth, and she left a note for the tooth fairy, uh, and she had this genius plan, uh, you know, thank you so much, tooth fairy, uh, and then she put a bunch of different colored markers, she marked, said, please mark your favorite color, knowing she knows all the favorite colors of everybody in the family, and so her thinking is this, all right, the tooth fairy's gonna circle the tooth fairy's favorite color, and then I got him, because I know who he is. It's brilliant. Brilliant little girl. Uh, case closed. Well, John here, he's given his evidence. Uh, he says, I got him. <laughs> I got the evidence. I know who the son of man is. I know who the Messiah is. And he's gonna point this out and put this up for all of us to see. He says, this Christ-like figure we've all been looking for, I got the evidence, it's Jesus. Look in verse 32, he says, John bore witness, this is what he says. This is courtroom language. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me, this is what he told me. He said, on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Guess what? I've seen, and I've borne witness, this is the Son of God. 
all through our passage. Uh, in verse 19, he uses the language of testimony. In verse, uh, in verse 20, twice he talks about John confessed. He didn't deny, but he confessed. And here, twice he says, I bore witness. This is all very, in, in, in the Greek, it's very ancient uh, courtroom language. It's, it's, it's like someone standing before a grand jury and testifying. And John is here, he's testifying. He's, he's before his interrogators and he's bearing witness. I have the proof. I have the eyewitness account. I saw it. Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one. This is the, the, the Messiah that we've all been waiting for. But don't just trust my eyewitness. I'm talking about something, someone even greater than me that has testified to this, and that's the Spirit of God himself. You see, the Spirit, this event that John's speaking of, or the Spirit coming down at, at Jesus' baptism and descending on Jesus, it's one of only a very few, maybe a dozen uh, events in, that's recorded in every single one of the four Gospels. It's incredibly important to our understanding of who Jesus is. Why? Because only God can identify himself as a sin-taking lamb. Only God has the authority to say, this is the one who can take away your sins. That's God's prerogative. Uh, he's the only one. Only the tooth fairy can identify him or herself as the tooth fairy by marking their favorite color and leaving that with a picture and a signed note underneath the pillow, right? Uh, only God is the one who can say, that's mine. That's me. He's the one that can take away all the sins of the world. Last week, uh, we talked about uh, the Trinity and the importance of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and how significant it is that Jesus is God and is with God, that, that he's both God and with God, that the Son and the Father uh, are two persons of the three persons of God in one essence, and how significant that is. Well, here in our text, we see that third person of the Trinity in the Spirit of God. That, that, that Spirit that comes down, that is the third person, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons coming down to certify Jesus is the Son of God. Now, there are other places in the Old Testament um, and the New where, where someone is chosen by God for a special task, and the Holy Spirit uh, talks about them, the Holy Spirit coming down upon them. It happened with Saul, uh, David, Samson. You remember he was filled with the Spirit. And he pushed the pillars down and crushed a bunch of Gentiles. But every time that we hear of that in the Old Testament, it's temporary. Spirit comes, it fills someone for a great task, and then the Spirit leaves. Um, but notice what it says in our text. He says, the Spirit descended in it, and it remained or abided on Jesus. Abiding is a big word in John. It's, 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 it's the dwelling with. It's the dwelling in. It's, the, it's the, the union of two becoming one or two, showing that they are, in fact, one, see, Jesus here, he didn't just temporarily borrow a measure of the Spirit to do some great work. It wasn't that the Spirit came and just kind of rested on Jesus for a minute to give him some extra strength he needed, and then it went away. No, the Spirit came and it abided. It remained on Jesus because why? Jesus has permanent possession of the fullness of God. Only Jesus can say that, and only Jesus has that level of the possession, the abiding of the Spirit as the essence of himself. Which means Jesus alone and Jesus himself is able to give the Spirit of God without limit. It's not something that he has that he gives away. It's something he is and he can give it without end. He can open blind hearts. He can save dead souls. That's what Jesus is, is talking about here when he says that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's not referring here in this text to some second later on baptism that a Christian receives to get power to do things like speak in tongues. What he's saying here, uh, we read this in Ephesians 1 and other places, uh, that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is given to Christians upon conversion. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. 
In John's baptism, what he's saying is, my work of washing with water is a physical washing, and it's pointing to the one who's going to do a spiritual washing. It says he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So just as John washes the body with water, he's saying, that's a symbol. That's just pointing to Jesus, the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Your body's not just going to get clean. Your soul is going to get clean. The Holy Spirit is active today. He still works in his people, doing miraculous things in unexpected ways, and, and we expect him to work in miracles and healings and, and wonderful gifts. We had a word this morning that's, that's the Holy Spirit works among us, but the most miraculous, the most wonderful, the most important work of the Holy Spirit isn't when he heals a leper and makes him clean, isn't when someone with a broken leg, their leg becomes healed. The most miraculous work of the Holy Spirit is when a dead heart comes to life. It's when a soul that hated God, ran from God, wanted nothing to do with God, now delights in him and treasures him above all else. That is the most remarkable, most powerful, most miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. And we celebrate that. We want to behold that. What a great thing that the Spirit of God has given to Jesus in fullness. That he is the fullness of God and that, that he is able to save not just uh, those who are close to him. <laughs> we serve a God who's able to save the hardest-hearted, most rebellious, furthest from him, rebellious sinner that you can think of. I'd start with me. <laughs> and maybe this morning you think that person is you. <laughs> maybe you're here this morning, and when I describe that, yeah, that's me. I don't want anything to do with this God. Listen, God's not done with you. His spirit is able to transform the heart of stone into a heart of, of blood-pumping flesh. Ah. He's able to transform a heart that hates God into one that delights and treasures him. Maybe you have friends or family that you've written off as unreachable. You've given up hope every Thanksgiving. Every Christmas you go, you, you share, you get that look, you know what they're thinking. Why do I keep doing this? Listen, no one is outside of the reach of the Holy Spirit of the living God. No one is outside of the heart-transforming work of God. No one is out of the reach of the God who pursues his people even unto death to the furthest reaches of the planet. And he loves the sinner, and he died for the sinner, and he pursues the sinner. God is pursuing sinners this morning. I believe there, there may be some this morning who you want something, there's a stirring there, but you just, you just can't believe that God would save someone like you. I mean, you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I did today. You don't know what I did last night. God's after you. Even the fact that you would ask a question, even the fact that you would be here this morning is an evidence that God is actively pursuing and giving a, a, a question in your heart towards him. That's already a regenerating starting work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in your heart. So I would, I would challenge you this morning, investigate this God, come to him, see if he loves you. Come draw near to him and see if he draws near to you. I'll tell you, he's already drawing near to you. He sent his son to die for you. He gave his very own son. The, this lamb that was slaughtered was slaughtered for your sins that you might be his treasured child now and for eternity. Your life has so much more value than what you put on it. Why? Because your life is purchased for Christ. Behold Jesus, church. Jesus is the main character of your story. 
Jesus is the sin taker whose blood was spilled for you. And Jesus is the spirit baptizer. He pursues and gives life to dead hearts. As we close up the sermon, I'm actually going to go and invite the ushers uh, to start getting ready. We're going to take communion together this morning. The band can make their way up. As they're doing that, I want to read from you a text from Revelation 7. Um, Revelation 7 is a selection of one of the visions that John, the same John that wrote this gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, wrote about the end times, about what happens when God's church, these spirit-baptized, these blood-bought people of God are finally brought across that, that highway turnpike from the wilderness to the promised land, what it looks like when they arrive at the promised land. I want to see. So let's look. Revelation 7. What's it look like on the other side of the turnpike? Where is this homeland that we're going to? Who's going to be there? Verse 13, it says, And then one of the elders, here John is, standing before God, addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And where have they come from? It's the church. Hint. I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These ones coming out of the great tribulation." These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's you if you're in Christ. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne, oh, listen to this, this promise is for you, will shelter them with his presence. God's very presence dwelling with his people. You're clean. You can draw near to him. They shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. And then look at verse 17. Who's in the midst of them? Who's in the midst of these people? Who's in the midst of God's people at the end of the road? For the lamb is in the midst of the throne and will be their shepherd. The lamb that was slaughtered is risen. And he's standing. And he's among his people and will be for eternity. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is your promise, church. This is what the Lamb of God purchased with his own body and blood for you. That you would for eternity dwell in the presence of the living God. That you would for eternity dwell in the presence of this Lamb who loved you so much that he sent his own son to die for you. Jesus is the one the whole story is about. He's going to be our shepherd forever. He's going to turn these dirty Sinful hearts into springs of living water. And he's given us um, symbols to remember that. And that's what we're going to do here this morning as we take communion in just a minute. These, these uh, elements are symbols of, of this work. And let me just say before we distribute 